theyeshiva.net. Welcome everybody, welcome to one and all, Bruchim Aboyim. As you know, tonight we resume Be'ezer Hashem, our series on Emunah. And these classes will continue uh, each Thursday night through Lag Bo'emer, excluding the Thursdays that are holidays, Yom Tovim, like Purim and Pesach. But Be'ezer Hashem, each Thursday night this time, here in the tent, we will have these uh, classes on the uh, on the basics of Amuno. I want to express my gratitude to the person who conceived of this idea and who sponsored it and sponsors it, Reb Mendel Zilberberg Schlita. He lost his uh, mother a few weeks ago. So uh, we want to offer him our deepest condolences and sympathies. And after the shear, he will say a Mishnah and a Kaddish. Le'ilu Nishmasa. And all the good food you're enjoying, the delicious food and the healthy food, one day they'll be the same, but not yet. Maybe after these shiurim are also due to his uh, credit. Now, I've given quite a few of these lectures and shiurim and classes, and to be uh, quite honest with you, they're not easy to give. They're very difficult classes to give. Cult, it's a difficult topic. It basically, it's going back to the skeleton. It's going back to the core of what Yiddishkeit is, what life is, what existence is. And uh, it's, it's challenging, it's challenging intellectually, it's challenging emotionally, it's challenging mentally. It's easier for me to give a shear on a Rambam, even though that's not easy, or on a Blad Gemara, on a Toysvis, on a Geshmaki Reb Chaim, or a Maimre Lekutat Torah, a Perek Tanya, or a Shtikl Svasemes, <coughs> or a Geshmaki Rakatshover, or a nice and brilliant other pirush of a Rishon or an Acherim. However, to tell it to you as it is, we opened up, right as we started, we opened up a forum where people can ask questions. Anonymously or not anonymously. And over this while, I have received, and I say this without exaggeration, a few thousand letters of people's questions, dilemmas, struggles, challenges, inquiries. Men, women, young men, young women, boys, girls, elderly people from Muncie, from the entire United States, and from places like from Sydney to Gateshead, from London to Johannesburg, from Yerushalayim to Bnei Brak, and from Moscow to Brazil. A lot of these questions were extremely painful. A lot of them very enlightening, interesting, always stimulating. And all of these questions, 
And just t- till today, I received, uh, I think today, just a dozen or two dozen questions. And I'll announce here that everybody is welcome to send in all of their questions. And I try to address them, whatever I can, to the best of my ability. To address Mamish, every question would take, I think, many years. But I try to address as many as I can. Everybody can email the questions to emuna at theyeshiva.net. And they're all treated with confidentiality. You don't even have to sign your name, so you don't have to worry about that. If you do sign your name, your name, uh, unless you want so, will not be revealed. But you can send all your questions to emuna at theyeshiva.net. And I realized, I discovered that uh, whatever I feel about these shiurim, this is a critical need of the hour. And I have to say that all of these letters and all of these shiurim have enriched my life. And that's why before I begin this new series, I want to express gratitude to all those who attended these shiurim and are attending tonight and will attend, and all those who are attending virtually or afterwards who listen to it or watch it, and all of the letters you have sent. Because even though these letters have required for me to do a lot of homework, they really challenged me and enriched my life and enriched my Judaism. Gemara says in Masech Tainus, Tav Zayin, the Rambam quotes it, Harbe lamadati miraboisai, Yoyse mechaveroi, mitalmida yoyse mekulam. I've learned much from my teachers, more from my friends, but from my students I have learned more than all. And all of your tremendous questions and inquiries and dilemmas and challenges, even when they were the very cynical and poking as Jews know how to send letters and emails and sometimes a good insult as well, and a good shtech and a good poke. All of them have enriched me on so many levels. In fact, for many of these letters, I was challenged and inspired to consult with people, experts in fields, physicists, scientists, psychologists, uh, therapists, uh, great lahavdil tamidei chachamim, and poiskim. And I learned a tremendous amount. So I'm going to open up with, I chose four letters that I received not long ago, recently. I hope to get through all four. If I can get through three, I'll be happy, but I'm going to try to get through all four. That for me represent, I chose them not not with a lot of thought or reflection, more or less randomly of what I had available. But I think they represent a lot of what goes through people's minds and people's hearts. I read these letters like I read all letters without judgment. I don't justify and I don't criticize. First and foremost, I try to listen and understand what people are going through and what they're experiencing. You'll hear these letters and you'll understand why I'm saying this. This is not a justification on anybody. This is not a judgment on anybody. It's not a criticism on anybody. First and foremost, it's about being attentive to what was tutzich of the Yiddish gas, was tutzich in Yiddish herzer. What is going on in the hearts and minds of our children, of ourselves, of our men, of our women, of binoreinu, biskeneinu, bibaneinu, bibnoiseinu? I read these letters almost verbatim, not mamish verbatim, I can't mamish verbatim, because of different expressions that I don't feel so comfortable sharing, but almost verbatim. Number one, I am a 20-year-old girl. I'm struggling with questions. I received your email address from a friend. I'm reaching out to you in the hope you'll be able to clarify my questions. 
I thought I experienced pain in my life before. But now that my faith in God is starting to fall apart, I'm beginning to understand what pain means. Because now I remain with absolutely nothing. I hope you can answer me. My life pretty much depends on what you're going to say. (laughs) You see why I say it's not the easiest job? I I was taught... And I learned that God created this world because He is good. He wanted to give good to others. In order to give us really go, real good, we have to struggle for it. Because without struggle, we wouldn't derive any real joy from the good He gives. It would be free lunch. I get this reasoning, but I really don't get why God had to create this concept. He can do anything. Couldn't He have created us to enjoy kindness without first struggling and suffering? Also. Just explain this to me. Because of his desire to give us good, we have to go through all the pain of this world. I wish he wouldn't have a desire to do any good for us. And we wouldn't have to go through all these struggles. Thank you, but no thank you. There is so much pain, I can't even bear to think about it. There is so much standing in our way, making us stumble. So much hatred and cruelty throughout the generations. So much agony, horror, and suffering. All this is to satisfy God's will of giving us good at the end. This world is such a mess. There seems to be so much bad coming out of this whole experiment. I know we have to believe that bad is good too because it purifies us, it cleanses us. But that brings me back to the question. Why this had to be the way of the world. Don't cleanse me and don't punish me and don't give me any good. And if he couldn't give us joy without pain, that means there are things God can do. So he's not all powerful. So why do you tell me that he's infinite? He's also limited. What can possibly be God's excuse for choosing to put us through this excruciating pain if there was another way? And don't tell me this is the best way because if it is then it is what God created to be the best way. Why did He create this as the best way? Why couldn't He create a different best way in which people don't actually experience so much pain to get to a place of true joy? I feel like we humans are God's little experiment, and it's turning out to be a cruel one. Couldn't He find a better recipe for this world? Can you experiment next time on other creatures? Because this one is surely absurd. And I don't care what the reasons are, and that there's a master plan. They tell me there's a master plan because God should be above all these reasons. He should be able to create a master plan that is beautiful. Wherever I go, I see pain, loneliness, and fear shout out from every corner. I can't describe to you how much loneliness and fear and anxiety I meet within myself and people around me. There's so much fear and pain everywhere. I turn my head away from the pain only to find more pain. Please explain to me why. I also don't understand the point of it all. We're supposed to, to, we're supposed to have pain in this world, forgo pleasure in this world, follow all the laws in this world, work hard, subdue our cravings and appetites. Why? So we can have pleasure in the next world. They tell us the next world is where it's all about. That's where the pleasure is. Aha! So I get tortured my whole life here to be able to have paradise there. Don't give me your honey, don't give me your bite. And is pleasure all that it comes down to? Even if it's a spiritual pleasure, is it all about pleasure and then we live happily ever after in this beautiful paradise? Is there any meaning to this? It seems to me that this whole explanation is so selfish. It's all about my pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure. What's the point? So I got pleasure, big deal. 
it seems very primitive. We suffer our whole life, and in the next world we're told, you'll have real pleasure. So if I live according to set laws, I'm rewarded for it. What's my reward? I become close to God. Then what happens? Is there ever a point in all of this? We are taught that struggle is a good thing. Being selfless is important. Why? Because I'm going to get to a place where I'm going to have all pleasure and no struggles, eternal joy. And that's selfless? So struggle is good. If it's so good, why is the reward no struggle? That means struggle is bad, so why do we have it? All of this is selfish, hypocritical, and primitive, and immature in my mind. A good Jew lives life the way God wants, by giving, and giving more, and giving more. They tell me, chesed is the name of the game. But it all comes to the end, when you enter Elam Haba, and then you can't give anymore, because everybody has everything. Then you just take, and take, and take, and take. So the purpose of life is to give or to take. We give in this world, and then the ultimate purpose is don't take anything. Don't give anything, just take and take. So all there will ever be to existence is we give in order to take, and we end up just taking because in paradise you don't need anything everything is joy is giving good or bad if it's so good why do we end up without any giving and if it's so bad why are we doing it this is a difficult contest with the sweetest prize at the end but i don't know what the meaning of this prize is I understand that being good for reward is the elementary way of serving God. We should serve God for the purpose of serving Him. But is that why God created us? So that we can go through the pain of this world just to serve Him? Again, absurd. And then there is fear. I believe in God. I believe in His existence. But He sounds to me so uncaring, angry, and even cruel. Like we are living in such a hard world where people fall through. They're tested. They're in pain. It's impossible not to. And then there is no way out of getting punished and purified. You tell me one person who doesn't sin, who doesn't stumble. I have to sin and then I have to get punished because God is good and He wants to cleanse me. This is awesome. Who said any of us... Any of us ever wanted this? And if God did this against our will, why am I supposed to be overjoyed to serve such a God who didn't even ask me? Why didn't he even ask me if I want this good? You don't just give somebody good without asking them. Tell me, consult me. And even if we did choose this, it was because there was no better options, no pain, free options. I have no one to trust. The only one I used to trust is God, but I feel that He's so fearful. I don't see kind, merciful, loving God. I only see how things could have been so much different and better. And why is there a possibility of getting to a point where there's no option of return? I have read that there are certain souls that don't even merit being punished because their sins are so bad. So God wants to give us good, but then He creates the possibility that some souls are lost forever. Why? It's silly you're going to tell me to question God. His understanding is infinitely greater than ours. If I'd be able to understand God, He would not be worthy of worship. This world was created with unfathomable genius. It's clear that our brains are limited. But when my mind started to place God's mercy in question, I couldn't go on anymore without answers. Surprisingly, I keep everything down to the smallest thing. You look at me, I am an ultra-religious girl, full of faith. I do everything because I am so afraid. And because somewhere deep down, I would like to buy into all of this. I am afraid to give up on God, on religion, because the moment I stop believing will also be my last moment. I am terrified. I wish I could trust and feel safe in Hashem's hands to know that He's protecting us, that He has really a good reason for doing this. Can there even be a good enough reason? I really can't imagine this. I used to have a great connection with God. 
But all these thoughts started to come into my head and the love vanished. All I feel is fear, terror, dread, and anger. How can you love someone you're so afraid of? And it's easy to be angry for being forced into this state of fear. When it comes down to it, I feel so powerless. I just need to feel 100% sure that he's doing what is absolute best for us. I hope you can provide me with answers. No, what do you say? Anybody wants to take the mic? <laughs> so, I answered, I answered this girl. I wrote her a, uh, a long letter, and I'll tell you the crux of my letter. The crux of my letter was that uh, I read it, I read it again, I read it a third time. She seems like a very brilliant and deep soul. And I really appreciated her sentiments, her feelings. And I said that she doesn't have to be afraid of her questions. And uh, God is confident enough to deal with all of it. And she could talk to him about all of these experiences and emotions better than talking to me about it. Because I'm not responsible for this world. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and I also suggested... That if she can, she should listen to the first uh, 17 or 18 classes that I gave on the basics of Amuna over the last two winters that are posted on the yeshiva.net with source sheets. She listened to all of the classes. She watched them all. And I wrote her some other things about a few details she wrote. And then she wrote this back to me. And I want to write this. I want to read this to you. It was very, very special to read this. She wrote, I watched... All the videos you asked me to watch. Your clear, empathetic, and geshmake talks hit home. First of all, it was a big relief to know that my amuna is completely intact and will remain so, and that it's okay to have questions. It took a lot of guilt and shame off my chest. It was relieving to hear all of my questions being clearly addressed to realize I am not the only crazy person in this world. To be able to hear what people are going through, what people ask, and what you are addressing was very affirming for me. I watched all of the classes. It opened me up to many new ideas and concepts. It brought me joy. I did realize that we don't know is at the core of many of the answers to the fundamental questions. It did bother me. It bothered me that I am so clueless in the face of so much suffering And I have no idea about so many things. But I decided to let the answer sink in for a while and see what happens. And I have to tell you that with every day that passed, I understood more and more what you meant in class one and two and other classes by saying that emuna is never undermined by people's questions and by people's suffering. Emuna is experiencing God through your soul, which is forever and everlasting, and it's always an intimate oneness between your soul and God that could never be obliterated, and no Jew, in fact, ever has doubts in Amuna. Their Amuna remains wholesome and perfect. They often have doubts in rationalizing and justifying and explaining things, things intellectually. I'm not going to tell you my questions disappeared. However, 
I realized my questions were not symptomatic of a broken amuna, which you clarified. Rather, most of my questions came from my emotional pain. This is what I realized from your classes. My questions were my way of projecting my pain, anger, and fear all onto God. I blamed God for all my insecurities, for all my fears, for all my psychological problems. You know why? Because, to be very honest with you, I never knew that I exist. I was taught, consciously or subconsciously, I was a robot. I was a shmata. I'm just God's experiment. So all pain is not even me, it's all God. So all of my issues, I projected on God. God became enemy number one. Suddenly I hear you speak about a partnership between humanity and God. We are partners. We co-create our life together. In one of the classes, you explained an idea of the Ramchal, an idea discussed in other, in also great Hasidic works, of why couldn't God create us in a way that we should enjoy things without owning them, without working for them? Why couldn't you just give us free lunch? And the answer you gave in one of those classes was, he could have done that. He could have created us, given us everything, including a relationship with him, which is the ultimate good, and require no work on our part. But what would have happened then was, if the ultimate good is oneness with God, it would mean that that oneness is achieved only through our receiving it. Which means by definition, we remain forever creations and never one with God who is a creator. God wanted we should be ultimately one with Him, which means we become divine like we are creators. We create our life, we don't only receive our life. If He would have given us the nature of... She's explaining my class to me. If, I'll explain it to you. But she explained it very well. I think maybe better than the original. If Hashem would have created us with the nature of being happy with free lunch and those gifts, we would forever remain recipients of life. We would forever remain mekablim. Hashem wanted there should be complete oneness. Just like He creates, we should be creators. Just like He gives, we become givers. And therefore, He wants us to be partners in creating the world, in writing our biography, in forging our destiny, in confronting our challenges. And then we become really divine-like. We become creators of our life. This is what I understood about myself. And then I realized that there was so much pain and anger and fear, and I just put it all onto God. Now I am being helped with the very difficult emotions that I had because of a miserable childhood and other miserable events in her life, in my life, which I'm not going to elaborate on here. I still wish in your future classes you're going to address at least some of my questions, the point of existence, pain, struggle, fear, point of mitzvahs and Torah, is it good to give, not good to give, is it good to struggle, what is paradise? But in the meantime, I have no words to thank you, you've shown a whole new light on Yiddishkeit for me. You were nice and caring, I don't think anyone ever said so many kind words to me, especially not in relation to questions on God. This is letter number one. Dear Rabbi, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I wish I would have never met you. Thank you, whoever you are. But I'm not going to say that conversely. I'm very happy to have met you. I wish I would have never met you.
If I would have not met you, I could almost forget what I knowingly walked away from. Finding people like you, those who get it, after the fact that we left Yiddishkeit, breaks our hearts. If I would have never met a person like yourself, I would have never questioned my decision to leave Judaism. Now that I have met you, every day I ask myself, if only, what could have been if I would have heard such classes earlier on in life? What could have been if I would have been too exposed to a Judaism that encourages individuality, truth, there's no politics, corruption, and where human dignity is honored, and where it's ultimately about love. These thoughts make the tears flow from my eyes when there's no one around to see me and so many people like me cry. I am married now for 13 years. I have a 7-year-old daughter. We own a home. I get to stay home. My husband has a good job. And although I have to be clever with budgeting, taking care of my family is my greatest joy. And I listen to your classes. But I am not married in the eyes of most Jews because I married a non-Jew. What is there to say? I had so much to give, I still have so much to give. He, my non-Jewish husband, saw it and appreciated it. My community never did. They always judged me terribly. I was never accepted. My parents are Bali Tshuva. They taught us to accept Judaism because of the beauty of Torah. Then when we came in, we never stopped being judged. They always told me my shidduch will be second or third class because I'm a Baltruva. And my grandparents are secular. And my other grandparents are secular. And my brother is still secular. And I go to New Year's party with my grandparents to honor them. They judged me for it. My husband, my non-Jewish husband, never judged me in such a hurtful way. Maybe his standards aren't as high as my Jewish friends. After all, he's a guy. His standards are much lower. But I would think Hashem would probably like us to lower our standards if that is what it takes to learn to love the image of God that all of us are supposed to represent. I don't think it's a lowering of standards. I think it's an elevation of standards. Much has to change to address all the people like me who left Yiddishkeit. Please keep spreading your message. If you succeed in creating a new consciousness, then all this sadness that comes along with walking away will not have been in vain. Miriam. Now here's a very different letter. I like your lectures. I appreciate the fact that you speak about topics that many people in our community make believe don't exist. It's wonderful. You don't talk about it, and it never existed. You are somehow, in the eyes of some, the person who takes it out of the closet. Some of us appreciate it. I have a dilemma. I'm a good boy. I'm 20 years old. 20. Married with a kid. I'm steiging away in Kailal all day on the bank account of my in-laws and my parents. Bound to make an impression on everybody that I'm a good, tired young man, a young man, a ben Torah, a man of Torah, a young man, learning in Kailal all day, probably for the rest of my life. 
beautiful, no? There's only one problem. I'm not interested in anything that has to do with Judaism whatsoever. On the outside, I have to act as though this is my only interest. I have no other interest. Inside, I have no feeling whatsoever about anything that was taught to me since I was born. Whenever I ask questions, they told me, we don't ask, or sepasnisht. You don't do it while sepasnisht. It's not suitable. I said, why? They said, you don't ask. The main thing is fear of what people will say and what the consequences may be and how my family will look at me, fearing rejection of family, neighbors, and friends. I made sure that my father saw that I was no different than anything that he expected from me. I have a good head over my shoulders. So ultimately I could cruise through the path and finding a chosh of a shidduch, which means a good match that can support my learning for years to come until I die. Having made a good impression on my family and their family, they dumped me in this place, telling me that there's nothing like Torah all your life. Sadly, there's something inside me that it's really not making this work. I grew up in an ultra-Orthodox community, in a kahila where everybody learns Torah all day. The only thing in the world they told me was Torah, 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 and more Torah. Nothing else matters, nothing else counts. There's no satisfaction in the world like the life of Ben Torah that dedicates his whole life to learn Torah and serve God every day. Don't ask me how learning about an ox eight hours a day connects me to God. I really can't figure it out. I've been learning about oxes and bulls goring each other. For many years, just explain to me how that could connect me to God. Why is that the ultimate of all life? They tell me just steig and learn and it's so enjoyable. And that's the greatest thing and everything else is just primitive and superficial and will not last. I have to say, I come from a place where every new chumrah they could come up with is a wonderful pleasure. Any new stringency, every new prohibition, we celebrate. Fear Shulchan Aruch like a ghost. And if you could find problems with other people, you will reach the crescendo of the religious experience. I must say, sometimes it can be quite cool. When I turned 18, I started to feel less and less of interest in what I was doing. More convinced that all of this that they taught me is not simple. I don't even know if it's authentic. I don't know if anything is true. I'm not sure I believe in it. It's full of controversies and contradictions. Everybody has something to say. People kill each other and argue with each other. And if you're not on my team, you're worthless. This one God, somehow so many different Jews follow in different ways. Am I following everybody like a fool without really believing in anything? It's two and a half years later, I'm learning all day, supposedly praying three times a day, looking exactly the same, the same hat, a long jacket, a white shirt, and now I even wear a strimal because I'm married. Let's not talk about the type of marriage I have. An arranged marriage in the full sense of the word, pushed into it after speaking to the girl for just two hours, I have to decide the partner for life as though they give me the choice to decide. I can't stand anymore the double face I'm playing. I hate it. I'm fake. I'm alive. I'm a deceiver. Can you give me advice how to deal with my situation? I also don't know who's right. I see you're not afraid of asking questions. Some people tell me that's heresy. You're not supposed to ask any questions. Are you right? Are they wrong? Are they right? Are you wrong? Why am I asking you if you're wrong? I don't know. But I just need, I need help in navigating my situation. What am I supposed to do with my life now? No, not everybody has these questions. Not everybody has these challenges. It's not true that everyone who asks questions is shunned. 
at all. This, as I said before, this is not a judgment on anybody, or any community, or any individual, or any rabbi, or any teacher, or any mentor. I read this to you because I think it's important for all of us to be attentive to what some people are experiencing. And not just some people, many people. As I told you, I don't exaggerate when I tell you, I read to you four letters, but these are four samplings of dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of letters, similar in one way, dissimilar in other ways. Some are just questions. These are not just questions. These are more than questions, as you can see. These are life conversations. But we live in a generation where if we do not address these thoughts, these feelings, and these experiences of people, we lose hundreds and thousands of our brightest, of our most beautiful, of our deepest, and of our greatest souls. We addressed some of these issues in previous classes. Everybody is invited to watch them on the yeshiva.net. We will be addressing in future weeks a lot of other questions, including some of these and other questions. Be'ezer Hashem, I will try to do the best I can with all of this, according to my understanding of, of Yiddishkeit and of Torah. Tonight, I want to address two themes that were brought up in these questions. The first is the last question of this precious young man living in the holy city and the holiest country of the world. And afterwards, the issues brought up in the previous letters by the young women. There's a beautiful teaching by the Benish Chai. The Benish Chai was the rabbi of Baghdad, of Iraq. He passed away, Tofresh Samach, 1900. His name was Rabbi Yosef Chaim. They actually recently discovered a recording of his. I heard a speech of his. This is from before 1900. And he was known as one of the great, uh, probably the greatest leader of Iraqi Jewry, which was very big then, and one of the great poiskim rabbis and also Kabbalists of his day. He wrote a lot, a lot of svarim. And one of them is a pirush, a commentary on Pirkeiovis on ethics of the fathers. And I saw there a powerful commentary of the Ben Ishchai. He quotes, actually, this vart from a previous sefer called Koich Yitzchak, And then he adds his own explanation and commentary. The Mishnah says in Masech Brachis, I think it's Lamed Gimel, Brachis 33, Ha'oymer, a Jew who says, Al-Kan Tzipor Yagiyu Rachamecha. A Jew says, wow God, you even have compassion on a nest of birds. Because you don't allow a person to take a mother bird and all of her young together. No. You want to take the young, first send away the mother. You can't take them all and so to speak kill out or shecht a family of birds. Send away the mother. And also even if you want to take away the young, make sure the mother is not there to observe it because of the pain that she may experience, that she will experience of seeing you snatch her young, her little eggs or her little birds in her presence. Make sure she's gone. So this man says, wow, you feel bad for birds. And somebody who says, maidim, maidim. Somebody who says, maidim twice. In Shemayin maidim, anachnolach, maidim again. Both of these people, mashat kenaisai. You silence them. Silence doesn't mean you have to knock out their teeth, as uh, this girl heard. But silence them means you challenge them. You, you explain to them that there's something off. 
asks the Ben Chai, what's the connection? What's the connection? Chazal explain why. Because we don't always know the reason for the mitzvahs. Shein and Alexeris. We don't always know the reason why you should send away the mother is because of compassion for the bird. That may be part of it, but it's not the whole picture. So therefore the person shouldn't come to conclusions. He says, okay, I understand. What's the connection to moidim moidim? Literally, you don't say moidim twice because it sounds like you're speaking to two rishuyas, God forbid, to two deities. You don't say shmat twice. You don't say moidim twice. There's one moidim. What's the connection? Why is it put into one stanza? So the Ben Ishchai quotes the Koich Yitzchak, and he says as follows. He says, there are two approaches to Judaism. There's the approach of the people who say, Al-Kan Rachamecha, and there's the approach of the people who say, Moidim Moidim. It's not just an individual scenario. It represents two tipusim, two archetypes, two prototypes, two, two profiles. There are those who say, Every aspect of Judaism, they want to research, investigate, and understand. Send away the mother, why? Put on sitzes, why? Shake a lulav, why? Believe in God, why? Shabbos, why? Shachas men chamayrev, why? I want why, why? What's the point? Who needs it? What's the use of it? Why am I alive? Why am I doing this? Why not just do whatever I want? Everything they're looking for meaning, for explanations, for reasons, even a mitzvah like sending away the mother bird, which is not a common thing. They're always looking for the meaning, the beauty, the compassion, the empathy, the significance, the symbolism, the richness, the love, the romance, the affection, the depth, the rationale in Yiddishkeit. That's one type of person. Then there's another person who walks around and says, Maidim, Maidim. You say, why? They say, Maidim. Why? You know, they say that there was once a person who was always saying Kaddish. Wherever he had an opportunity, he was always saying Kaddish. One time... He started to say a Kaddish. He finished the Pesach We'll soon have a Kaddish at the end of this year, but it's not a person who's always saying this. a justified Kaddish. But he was always saying Kaddish. They finished the Pesach Kaddish. A guy said, Advatayra Kaddish. One guy in Shul starts screaming at him and says, I don't understand. The halacha says, Ain mar Kaddishim. You're not supposed to say many Kaddishim. Unnecessary. He says, where's that from? The guy says, Halacha. He says, Halacha is Gadalvi is Kaddish. Right? <laughs> That was his thing. Maidim, <laughs> maidim. He has one track mind. Maidim means you got to be maidim. You have to submit. You have to surrender. You have to acquiesce. You have a question. And he doesn't stop. Maidim, maidim. That's his approach to life. That's a different approach. The way to deal with Judaism is to respect the Messiah. To respect the tradition. As they always tell, as certain people will always tell their students, you think the means the best right? Some of you are smiling. You think you suddenly you and Columbus discovered America, and your grandfather was a fool, and your grandmother was an idiot, and your great grandfather was a greater fool, and his father. Everybody, till you, genius. Now, sometimes people say it because they don't have answers. So the best way of dealing with it is insulting somebody. If you can insult them, you sometimes think you get even. That's never a tactic that works. 
But I'm not talking about a response that comes from insecurity or the need to create an equilibrium. And therefore, if I put you down, I could feel better about myself. And if I could call you names, suddenly your questions are not questions anymore because you're either a mashugana or a heretic. I'm not talking about that. I don't think that is justified. I don't think that has a place in authentic Judaism. I'm talking about a genuine approach which says, you don't have to understand everything. Jews stood at Matan Torah, they had Maimon Har Sinai, there's a system that's true, you can trust that it's true, it's not crazy and blind, and you don't have to understand. Say, Moidim, Moidim. In fact, if you start going into the realm of investigation, who knows, you might get into a maze, and you may not find your way out, you get stuck in the maze, much healthier. Boshem says, we say, Eloikeinu velekeaviseinu, but it's a different God. Our God and the God of our fathers, sometimes it looks like it, right? It was a different, what's Elekeinu Velekeavisein? We always say Elekeinu Velekeavisein. What, he suddenly changed? When he crossed the Atlantic Ocean, he became a new God? Elekeinu, our God? Velekeavisein, the God of our fathers. What if our fathers were also born in America? So the Baal Shem Tev once said, he said, it's talking about two paths in Judaism. One is the path of Elekeinu. It's my God, it's our God. I own it, so to speak, because I had to learn it. I had to discover it with my kishkas, with my guts, with my heart, with my mind, with my soul. And one is I received it on a golden platter from my father's. And each one has a tremendous advantage. Each one has a tremendous advantage. And each one has challenges. Says the Ben Ishchai from the Koych V'Yitzchik, that's what the Mishnah is saying. Somebody who screams all day, Al-Kan I have to understand everything has to make sense to my mind. The other one is screams, Maidim, Maidim. Both of them are Shatkin, Both of them you have to challenge and explain that the extremism here is not a sign of intelligence and not a sign of deep commitment to Judaism on both levels. On the contrary, the Mishnah says, he says, Rebbe Yoimer, this is where he put, says it in Chazdei Yavis, the beginning of the second chapter of Pirkei Yavis. Rebbe Yoimer, Eze derech yisharashi avaloya adam, kol shi tiferes lo yisel, v'siferes lo yimena adam. What's the proper path that a person should choose in life? Every path that's beautiful to its maker, and beautiful to people around you. What's the question, what's the answer? Rebbe is the editor of the Mishnah. He edited Shisha Sidri Mishnah, the fundamental text of Torah Shabal Peh. He's asking Ezi Derech Ishara? <laughs> That's pretty sad. Rebbe gets up Shabbos by the Drosh says, By the way, Chavah, what do you think is the right Derech? Really? If you don't know what the right Derech is, who should know? You're the teacher of the Jewish people. He's the only person who's called the Rebbe. The Rebbe, the teacher, Rabbi Huda Anossi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. He wrote the Mishnah. A century and a half after, a century and a half after the destruction of the second base Amikdash, around 150, 200 after the common era, approximately. And he asks, what's the right path that a person should choose? And what's his answer? You would think his answer would be, open up a Shulchan Aruch and see. <laughs> go through Arachayim, Simen Aleph, Simen Beis, finish Arachayim, go to Yeridea, Evanazah, Choshim Mishpat, and Chasal said the Pesach. You'll know what the right path is. What's the question? His answer, so what's his answer? His answer is, if it's beautiful for the maker, for the one who does it, and it's also beautiful for the people around you. 
What is Rebbe teaching us here? He's teaching us here a very powerful idea. He knows what the right path in Yiddishkeit is. He knows what to do. But the question here is about the internalization of Judaism. And the internalization of Judaism is important that a person should be able to feel its beauty. Should be able to celebrate its tiferes, its splendor. A person shouldn't only be able to say, this is true, I don't even know why. A person should be able to feel and experience the tiferes. And even the people around them should say, wow. How are such people made? Where do you find such people? How do you create such people? I was once teaching in a yeshiva and I was close to a group of students. So they once asked me a good question. What's your ambition? What's called success for you? What would you like to see from us? They asked me, what would be called success and what would be called failure? So I told them, if you're walking down the street and somebody passes by you, and then he walks, he sees you, and then he walks further, and he turns around to look again, and he wonders, what is it that these young people know that turns them into such beautiful people? That means that there was success, there was success here. Tiferes loimin ha'adam, says the Ben Ishchai, was this question, what's the right path of Yiddishkeit? So he says, First of all, you have to know if it's beautiful to its maker, the one who made it, to Hashem. And and beautiful for the people who observe it. Don't just scream, I understand everything, I will comprehend everything. If I have a question, it's the end of the world. The human brain is finite. Essential to the search for truth is... That ignorance of humanity is very profound. In ignorance we are all wealthy because our brains are very finite and we're in the presence of mystery. Even when you're looking at a tree and you're studying one leaf, you're in the presence of mystery. The genius of that leaf and what it does from photosynthesis to to converting sunlight into glucose to containing... All of the billions of components that make a tree workable, that itself is the essence of, you're in the presence of mystery. On the other hand, somebody who walks around screaming, moidim, moidim, you're not allowed to think, you're not allowed to explore, you're not allowed to ask, there's nothing to ask. That's an insult to Judaism, it's an insult to God, it's an insult to Torah, it's an insult to mitzvahs. And it's in a very important balance and very important equilibrium in Yiddishkeit. But there is now one more component that I would like to address today that has to do with pain, especially pain that is connected to one's relationship with God and Hashem. That comes across, in men, comes out in many letters, and I think many of us deal with it. And how could you not deal with it in a world that has a lot of pain? There are many questions, my friends, that have answers. <laughs> the answers themselves are multi-layered, and there's many questions that require growth and research and scrutiny and investigation and learning.
There are many questions in life, my dear friends, that don't have answers. But then there is the component of pain in life. A few days ago, I was sitting with a man who was a very wise and deep person. I know him for quite a few years. And he was sharing with me the story of his life. And he shared with me something very profound that I think is very genuine and very truthful. This man suffered a lot. He didn't have an easy youth. More than one sibling of his died very young. He got married. He had children. His wife passed away very young. Leaving him with a bunch of orphans. He moved on with his life and then experienced more painful experiences in life. And I asked him one day as he was talking to me. I see that your faith in Hashem, your relationship with Hashem is very intact. You're an intelligent person. You're a very open person. He's an extremely open and mature person. What happened? How did it not affect your emuna? And this is what he shared with me. I heard this from him, I heard this from other people. It was a very meaningful response. He said it wasn't always like that. When he started to go through some very painful experiences in life when he was much younger, he was doing what he thought is the right thing for a Jew to do. He started to read all the Sforim about Yisurim. You know, he goes into the book, he goes into the store, and he buys every possible book about Tsar and Olam Hazan, Olam Hab, and Oinshim, and Gilgulim, and Chatoyim, and Sadikim, and Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah, and Eoiv, every Rishon, and every Acheron, from the Ramban to the Ramchal, <coughs> from Rav <coughs> Desla to the Chazonish, from Chachmei HaMusset, Chachmei Achkir, from the Gemamori Chazal, he started to read up and everything, that's a good cop, he has a good mind, and he, that's how he was, and he was saying, this is good, and this is good, and it has a purpose, and not in this world, but next world, and this is cleansing, all the explanations, and etc. And he said, one day, he was living in a particular place where his wife, of blessed memory, had to go through treatments. And he met there a person, a rabbi. And the rabbi looks at him, and says, uh, what is happening with you? How is your relationship with Hashem? How is your relationship with life? How are you dealing with all of this? So he starts giving a lecture about, you know, this has this explanation and this explanation. He's doing all the right things. He told me the man looked me in the eyes and said, you are so dishonest with yourself you are so detached from yourself you are so detached from your emotions and I feel bad because I don't think you have any relationship with God I think your entire relationship is fictional in some place of your brain that is completely not real and authentic and he told me that moment I knew he was right and the man said you have to tell God everything you feel. 
You have to be raw, vulnerable, naked. He wants your truth. And your truth means what you're experiencing from your own heart, your own guts, your own mind, your own soul, and your psyche. And he tells me, he was in the car, he broke down sobbing, and he had a conversation with God like he never had before. And he repeated to me the conversation, which I will not repeat because it was very raw. And even though we're discussing raw things, but it's still not so intimate around here. But he spoke exactly what he was feeling. He said, and at that moment, I felt close to God like I never felt before. And then he said, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, I'm not going to explain to you anything, I'm just going to tell you my experience. And that is, as long as I was philosophizing, as long as I was justifying, as long as I was trying to manipulate the reality and find meaning, I was actually distancing myself from God. The moment I could allow myself to experience my pain, to feel everything I was feeling, and to bring it to Hashem, I felt close to Him. I don't know why, but I'm just telling you the fact. And the more I felt the rawness of my pain and the reality of my situation without covering it up and without manipulating it in any way, the closer I felt to Him. But even though he said he's not explaining it, he also explained it quite well. Because in some realities of life, God is not in the explanation. You know why he's not in the explanation? What does Reb Nachman say? We say, uh, his servants ask each other, where is the place of His glory? So He says, Meshars of His servants, Shoyalim Zelazah. They lend each other the experience of Ayei Mekayim Kavaydei. Sometimes in the question, Ayei Weir, that's where He is. In the Ayei Weir, that's Mekayim Kavaydei. Some experiences in life defy human imagination. Who can wrap their brains around 17 little kids, 17 teenagers being gunned down yesterday in the Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida? Who can wrap their brains around it? What is somebody going to tell their mothers, their fathers, their siblings, burying their children with glorious, beautiful lives ahead of them, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, the beginning of, of beautiful, young, talented, angelic lives? I told you once, I think, I once met a mother. One of the most meaningful, impactful conversations I had with somebody. A woman shared this with me. I might have shared this in Amuna number 9 about pain. I don't remember, but probably. She told me an experience she had. Her son was diagnosed with cancer. He was six years old, I think. In the hospital, he asked her, his name was Yosef, Yossi. He asked, he said, Mommy, why did this happen to me? She tells me years later, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, I was stupid. And I told him probably 
you sinned in a previous reincarnation. And therefore your neshama, your soul needs cleansing. So this is the cleansing. But afterwards you're going to be perfectly pure. She says, I finished my explanation, quote unquote. And he just looked away from me. He didn't argue, he didn't respond, but I knew at that moment that I failed him. I lost him. His eyes turned away, and that was the end of the conversation. I knew, not only did I not connect to him, I betrayed him. Two years later, he was still suffering, and he asked me again, why me? She tells me, I thought by now I was already smart. So I tell him, my dear son, because you're a tzaddik. And Hashem tests tzaddikim. God tests the righteous. And my son turned his eyes away from me. And I knew I failed him. I struck out. I knew that I struck out at that moment. He went into remission. For a few years, he was doing well. At the age of 11, the disease came back with a vengeance. He was now in the hospital, and he turned to me the third time in his life, and he said, Mommy, why me? And she says to me, Rabbi Jacobson, after all these years, I did become somewhat smart and sensitive and refined. I took my son's hands, I put them in mine, I caressed them, I looked them into his eyes, and I said, my dear son, I don't know. And his eyes remained fixed on me. He didn't move his eyes away. And two pearls, which we call tears, streamed down his cheeks. And I knew that I shared with him something that was special and meaningful to me. I played dumb, and I asked this lady, explain to me what was the difference. And she said... The third time, I validated his experience. I remained present in his reality. The first two times I was busy manipulating his reality and creating a fictional movie that didn't exist and trying to impose that fake reality on his reality and finding comfort in that which didn't exist. You think he wanted for me an explanation? You think I could give this boy an explanation why he's suffering from cancer? You think I can have a rationalization as a justification for somebody in such pain? All I can do is be present in the moment. Be present in the reality. Give it the dignity it deserves. Don't belittle it. Don't make it small, insignificant, valueless. It'll be good. In the next world you're going to have a wonderful life. It's true, a lot of things are true, but at this moment the reality is this person is in tremendous agony and pain. Can you just be present? Can you just look him or her into the eyes and say, I don't know, I'm here. Two weeks later that boy passed away. And she said she was so thankful that she could have that conversation with him. That I don't know. And here is the fascinating paradox. God is reality. Hashem exists in reality. When somebody's reality is pain, that's where you'll find God. You will not find God in academic speculations 
they will leave you academically maybe super smart or dumb. We always have to remember what Einstein said, two things are infinite, the universe and stupidity. And the latter is more infinite than the former. And I say, Einstein didn't even know how right he was. He could have gotten the Nobel Prize just for that. Who cares about the theory of relativity? Sometimes you hear certain things, you have to say, yeah, Einstein was right. You don't always have to tell it to the person. They probably won't understand it anyway. It's fine, you can have compassion. So yes, I can have academic, it's called, I called academic acrobats. There's people who are very good with academic acrobats. They have kalvachoymas, mit gzayrashovas, mit rayas, mit heichitimtsas, mit pshetlach, mit vertlach, with a story, with a vort, with a... Beautiful. It's like the guy who wanted to... He went, he went to the Rav, he said, I want to learn architecture. He's going to university to learn architecture and construction. He says, why do you need it? He says, I build a sukkah every year and it flies away. So I want to finally learn how to build something. He says, you don't need college. Learn Masech to sukkah. Gemara Rashi. You learn Dav Zayin, Dav Ches, Dav Tes. You learn mathematics, trigonometry, algebra, circles, squares. You know how to build a sukkah. He says, Givaldic, I'll do that. And he learns Gemara, Sukkah, and Rashi, and he builds a beautiful Sukkah, according to all the principles, and a half an hour before candle lighting Erev Sukkahs, a storm comes, and the Sukkahs, all of HaSholem, Yizgadalvi, Yizgadash, it flies away, and a piece of the Schach goes on to every roof in the city and the community, Hayeled HaSukkah, comes running to the Rav, the Rav says, what, what are you coming I?" He says, I learned Gemara and Rashi's sukkah and I built a sukkah and look what happened. How could this happen? He says, yeah, Toysvus asks it. <laughs> so people often can exercise academic acrobats. Sometimes they're good. They're good questions. But you're not in touch with the reality of the person. And you're not in touch sometimes with your own reality. And let's face it, many of us are very good in being disconnected from our own reality. We're taught our whole life, or we teach ourselves our whole life, your reality is evil. Stay away from it. Your mind, your soul, your emotions, your feelings, your instincts, your habits, your appetites, your dignity, your value, the devil. You, the father of the devil. Your essence, avi avoy so you always disassociate from reality, beginning from your reality. But the truth is that Hashem, truth, God is truth. Truth is in reality. It begins in your reality. So if a person is experiencing pain, even anger, deep frustration, loneliness, agony, even in the most excruciating way, don't run from it and don't think you have to be afraid of sharing it with God. This is where you will find your truth. This is what you have to share with your God. And paradoxically, this man told me, the more I did that, the closer I felt to Hashem. And that meant sharing with him everything. Even things that don't always sound rosy and delightful. The Gemara puts it in its own inimitable way. Gemara in Yuma Daf Samach Yuma 69b. The Gemara says that when we say Shmaina Esra, we say four praises about God. Hakel, Hagodol, 
Hagibor v'anoira. That's it you have to say about him. God who's great, mighty, and awesome. That's it. So the Gemara says, Moshe said it. In Parshas Ekev HaKela, God lagibav anoira l'yisaponim. We quote Moshe. Daniel and Yirmiya took out the words Hagibor and Hanoira. How'd they do it? The Gemara says they couldn't. Daniel and Yirmiya saw the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash and the fire that consumed the Jewish people. They couldn't say Hashem is a gibber. He's powerful and He's awesome. For them, they did not see a display of power and awesome. They couldn't say it. Ask the Gemara, but Moshe said it. How can they have the audacity to delete these two terms? Moshe said it. And the Gemara says, and I quote, Mitoich sheyodu shamitiu. They knew the definition of Hashem is truth. Emes. They will not lie. When God becomes anything but truth, this is not God anymore. This is not Judaism. Better an ugly lie, better an ugly truth than a beautiful lie. Because it's truth. Better a painful truth than a rosy lie. Because it's truth. It's truth that sets you free. It's truth that ha- is the house of reality. It's truth that contains God. That's the definition. The seal of Hashem is truth. I was once consulting with Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, about different aspects of my work. So he told me, one day you might write a book. And today in a book you have to have askamas. You have to have endorsements from 50 people, 20 people. If you could, 100 people. And that helps the book sell. So I'm going to ask you and suggest you, you should have one more endorsement that's not so popular in many books. He says it's not going to help the book sell. But it's good to have this. I'm not asking you to be the only endorsement. It should be one of the 100 endorsements. I said, which one? Who? From you? He said, no, no. If you can have some truth in the book. <laughs> so God, God can endorse. He said, I'm not telling you to be the only one. It could be the last one also. But at least it should be one of the endorsements. Then the Gemara explains how Anshe Knesset HaGadoyla restored the two words, HaGibar V'Hanoira. Hein hein gvuroisov, hein hein oiroisov. Sometimes Hashem's awesomeness and infinity is expressed in the power of silence and in the power of concealment, in the mystery of pain. Sometimes that's the expression of infinity. Achein ata keil mestater. The Navi says, you are a God who conceals himself. I don't know if you know that the Balhatanya, who was a composer, the Alter Rebbe, the Balhatanya, composed a song on the words, you know? And I always wondered about this song, because it's a profound song, but it has a certain component of, I don't know, joy, but a certain element of simcha. There's something very pleasant about it. Why choose these words for a nigin? And it's not a depressing nigan. There's something hopeful about it. It's, there's almost an element of a march in it. The song goes like this. The Balatanya song. Oh, 
Indeed you are a concealed God. Indeed you are a concealed God. You, you, you see the temple is unique to these words. But this is the point that he was seeing in these words of the Navi. The fact that you could know that God doesn't always reveal Himself in sunshine. Sometimes you'll find Him in the dark clouds. Don't run away from them. Because you'll be running away from your reality. And that reality is where you will find His truth. That itself is a tremendous source of intimacy. This is what this Jew was explaining to me just a few days ago about his experience. And then I saw that the Baal Shem Tov says it. And he says it quite in an unusual place. In Parshas B'Shalach, the Jewish people are standing between what we call a rock and a hard place. On one side you have 600 of the choice of the best of the Egyptian troops with Para, a huge army, and on the other side you have a sea. You're literally stuck. And they're screaming and complaining and crying and sobbing. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us here to kill us. We told you, Chadalmi men who leave us alone, let's remain slaves. Better a living slave than a free dead corpse. This was their argument. Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to them. He tells them, relax. Stand here. God will fight for you. You'll be silent. But then he says another line. Ki Just as you see Egypt today, you will not see Egypt again. And the commentators struggle with the awkwardness of these words. Moshe should, see, should say, you're not going to see the Egyptians again. No, he says, Ki kasher isim, sagam sepilpo. Kasher isim, es mitzrayim ayoyim. Lo yisifu. The way you see Egypt today, you'll never see them again. <laughs> and the way I don't see them today, I will see them again. So the Baal Shem Tov says, it's printed in Baal Shem Tov, Allah Torah, Parshas B'Shalach, and I'm going to quote it. Ha Baal Shem Tov, Zechreine Levrach Epirish. One line, probably contains 20 volumes of psychological work, and $20,000 worth of, worth of therapy. <laughs> but sometimes to get this line, I've been Saul and Shveregelt, to understand one line from the Baal Shem Tov. The fact that you have the courage to look at Egypt today will allow you never to see them again. The courage that you have not to be afraid to look at your pain. Not to be afraid to look at your Mitzrayim. And it may cause you to break down, it may cause you to sob. And that those tears will wash over you. And you'll become a new person. That is what will allow you... Allowing myself to stay... With my realness, with my authenticity, 
not avoiding the reality of what I am experiencing, that is where I find my closeness and my relationship with God. We never ever have to be afraid of being completely naked, psychologically, raw, and open. Not trying to make believe anything, not denying reality, not denying what we're feeling. Moving away from reality is moving away from truth, it's moving away from Hashem. Let me tell you something. I don't mean to be so blunt, but I'll say it bluntly. Worse than living in hell is being there without acknowledging it. If I could be there and acknowledge it, I can get out of it. This is the secret of healing. It always begins with honoring what is. It always begins with the pain one is in. I don't have to put it in a box and try to neutralize it. I'm feeling what I'm feeling. You're feeling what you're feeling. And what you can give yourself as a gift is to experience what you're experiencing. You heard what I said? What you can give yourself as a gift is to experience what you're experiencing. To actually experience it. I read an article recently. It was the yard site of Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Zechrona Levracha. So a student wrote that he came to Rabbi Moshe Shapiro and actually, I had the merit of hearing the last shear from him. The last shear he gave was the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah. He was here for treatments. And he ended up in a little shtibel. On which street? Baruch's shtibel. Which street is it? <laughs> on Grand Park Drive. And uh, by Shalashudas, he gave a long, hour-long shear. A few months later, he passed away. So we had Malava Malka that night in somebody's home. And I had this chus to have a long shmooz with him. So one of his students wrote that he came to him. And he was describing a re- reality, a situation he was having in life. And how painful it is. And how traumatizing it is and how difficult it is. And Reb Moshe told him. Right now, that's what God wants you to experience. Now this has to be understood. I don't think he meant he wants you to suffer. I think what he meant was, worse than the pain, there's a difference between pain and suffering, worse than the pain is, making believe I don't have it, telling myself I'm not allowed to have it, rationalizing and justifying why it doesn't really exist, and then what happens is I repress it, I don't let it come out, and what do you think happens? You think it doesn't come out? It leaks out from every possible corner, and it takes me over, not consciously, subconsciously. And everything I'm doing now is a response to the pain, and usually trying to do anything I can to avoid it. Comes the Moirei Naim, on this side you understand. On this side, Farshtet Menach, Abyssal. Comes the Moirei Naim, Reb Nachum and he says in Parshas Vayishlach, he once did a long shir on this Moirei Naim. But I want to bring out here one point and conclude with this. Moirei Naim says, 
The Mishnah Pasuk says, Love God with all your heart. Zog the Mishnah in Baruchas, the end of Baruchas, with both of your inclinations, your positive one and your negative one, and everybody asks, how does that work? I can love God with my divine inclination. How do I love God with my Yetzirah? And the Moira Naim says in Parshas by Yishlach, it's because we misread. We don't know how to read ourselves. When I am experiencing any instinct, any drive, any feeling, it can be driving me crazy. You don't have to run from it. That's part of your life's journey. Let it be. You don't have to worship it and turn it into a God and let it dictate your whole life. But just let it be. Sometimes we feel an emotion that's very, very difficult. You're at a simcha. <laughs> Happens always at simchas. You're at a sheva bracha, at a bar mitzvah, at a wedding. You're supposed to be happy, right? Everybody's supposed to, everybody's smiling, right? And that's when emotions come up. Stuff that are very, very not nice. You don't want to share them even with your therapist. You don't want to share them. That and how much money you're worth. You realize people will tell their therapist every schmutz about themselves, but not how much money they have in the bank. Because in America, that's more intimate than the most intimate issues. Who amar vayehi is a mamen. That's a social commentary. How much money you have? Not everybody. Some people. I asked my sister how she's doing financially, so she told me we started off with nothing, and we're still left with most of it. <coughs> so then you have no issue telling it to your therapist. But those who have, like the Russians, the cash under the, in the pillowcases, that they won't share so easily. You're dealing with all these stuff, and it's like, it's I'm a good man, yeah? I'm a good husband, I'm a good son, I'm a good father, I'm a good guy. And suddenly you want to kill everybody that's near you. So what do I tell myself? Oh, I'm not really feeling it. No, it doesn't make sense to feel it. You'll give yourself all the reasons why you're not supposed to feel it. Of course you're feeling it. So you think the feeling goes away? No, it just gets repressed and it comes out in a hundred different thousand different ways. The Bnachim Chernobyl says in Mayer Naim, the Gemara says in Yuma Lamed Chesamet Beis, Yuma 38b, Habali Tomei, Poischin Loi, Habali Tayem somebody who comes to be contaminated, they open the door for him. Literally, it means God doesn't stop you. You want to contaminate yourself, Pajalista, Labriot, Leteavon, Tsugazun, Tsumapetit. As they say in English, knock yourself out. The door is open. The Helikamari Naim says, Haboli Tome Paiskinloi means something else. When a person has an instinct, a machshava, a thought, a feeling, an experience, that's pulling me to a place of tumah, of, of impurity, of, of dysfunction, of, of, of negativity. That is your portal, your Pesach, to find God. In his words, if people would only understand the depth in every instinct they have, it would bring them to Ruach HaKodesh. Instead... They take the superficiality of it seriously and they fall into the abyss as a result.
Because we don't realize what it is. If you could just let it be, you will suddenly find in that an opportunity for tremendous self-discovery and tremendous growth. But don't run. Let the heart be. God is not afraid of your heart. You don't be afraid of your heart. And no, this doesn't mean you embrace it and you worship it and you follow it. And if I have a thought to smash your window and punch you your nose and break your glasses, this is what we're saying. Honor it and go ahead and do it. On the contrary, when you let it be, it's a feeling, it's, it's a yetzahara, it's, 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 it's pain that I have, it's stuff that I have, it's poison that I have, it's toxicity that I have. It's part of my journey in life. And when I'm not busy running from it and crushing it and repressing it and lying about it and deceiving myself about it, you know what happens? From that, I will learn what my journey is, what my mission is. And that itself will become a tremendous opportunity for new growth, for new awareness. Never be afraid of what's going on in you. You hear, my dear friends? Never be terrified of the world that is in you. God is there. He's in every part of it. He says, the Pasuk says, Shloyma Melech says, Re'ei chayim im ha'isha asher See the life, find life with the woman who you loved. So he explains as follows. Re'ei chayim im ha'isha asher is... In every situation you could find a life in it. Even a Ma'isha Sharahafta, which people call what he calls an Ahavanafula, a fallen love, a compromised love. Don't see the death in it. See the life in it. There are sparks there. There are opportunities there. It's your reality, it's part of God's reality, because God is in reality. This is true in all forms of pain. It's true in all forms of struggles. And it's especially true in all of our struggles we have with life, with Yiddishkeit, and with Hashem. The hour is late. I'm going to conclude with one final insight that is very relevant to this week. One of the biggest questions in Judaism, or one of the great questions that is asked is, how could God put himself into a box? The theme of Parsha's Truma is, God says, build a box and I'm going to be there. Really? <laughs> I want you to build a shtibel, a mobile sanctuary, 150 feet long. And inside there should be a box, two and a half arms length, a few feet, five, six feet. I'm going to be in that box. Make sure there's a few gold, two golden cherubs. I'll come right in between. Really? Don't make pictures, don't make images. And suddenly, boom, in a box. This is the source of Judaism in a box. And that's the way to connect. You had to bring a carbon in the base of Mikdash. You had to bring a carbon in the Mishkan. Were a serious violation. Until today, we daven, you go to a shul to daven. Why do you go to a shul to daven? Also in a box. Okay, a tent. <laughs> Still a box. 
One of the explanations that's given by the students of the Baal Shem Tev is as follows. In our minds, justifiably, space, time, and all limitations are a contradiction to God. God is infinite. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Ein Seif, space, boxes, limitations, are of course a contradiction to Hashem. Implicit in that statement is something else. We are limited. We all have our boxes. Who doesn't have their limitations? We're limited in our minds, in our experiences, in our assumptions, in our feelings, in everything. We are limited. Our time is limited, our energy is limited, our resources are limited. Our lives are limited. We are mortal, finite human beings. Adam Flesh and blood. If God defies limitation, and limitations are a contradiction to God, then we who are limited might also be a contradiction to God. What does that mean practically? It means something very deep. According to this philosophy, God may dwell in us, He may be manifested in us, but never, never in our limitations, never in our limited mind, never in our personality, and never in our story. These are too small, too primitive to contain Him. It's this assumption of the mind that parshas truma tetzaveki sisa vayakel pkude much of ayikra much of amidbar come to change and challenge. God is found in your story, in your heart, in your boxes, in your vessels, in your pieces of furniture. Yes, they're not more than four, five, six feet. And look at your brain; it's pretty small. And your stories are sometimes even more small. And your pain, gewalt. As somebody would tell you, grow up! (laughs) Grow up! This is one of the revolutions of Judaism. Don't tell infinity what it has to look like. You decided infinity looks infinite. Maybe it doesn't. Don't dictate to infinity what it has to look like. Infinity is infinite, and part of being infinite means, don't tell me that I have to be infinite. I can choose to be in a relationship with the finite. And that means, when you go in into your own self, your own mind, your own heart, your own story, your own life, your own reality, your real, real reality, v'shachanti b'soychom, not b'soychoy, like the Reish Chachma and the Alshech and the Shalah say, it should have said B'soychoy in the singular. B'soycham is the plural. B'soych kalechad v'echad. Go into your own truth, into your own reality, and you will find your intimacy with the Divine Presence. Have a wonderful week. Divide from the Balsham Tev. You're welcome. Bruchem Aboyim. V. Endik Telaskil Chabina. 
You don't dance on Tisha B'Av. person sits by Shiva and says, Let's start dancing. Why no music? That's against Tayyid, it's against Halach, it's against the Maim Chazal. This is a matzah that I should create. Something called available, something called tissue, something called poison. Oh, it's cool, good. I'm just acknowledging it. A person runs away from that. They detach themselves from themselves. If they're, if they're malachim, fine, but most people are malachim. A person lives in Elam Hadam, fine. But we don't live in Ireland. We live in Ireland. the <laughs> <laughs> Ich 
ganz Leben bei ihm ist Dweikus mit den Eberstern. Heint ist der Dweikus Azoi, da ist der Dweikus Azoi. Aber ich kann andere... Sein herrgischen Leben ist Dweikus mit den Eberstern. Jeden Moment ist Dweikus Azoi. Wie wird der Bakubat gesagt? Kol Yomai, Yissi Mitztaye, Mosa Yobelade, Wachemeno. Jetzt bin ich mit keinem Bechol Nafschecha. Sein Mitzwe. Sein Mitzwe. Da sagt er mich hat Chilla. Er sagt nicht keine andere Realität. Das ist schon das ist der MS, aber das ist ein Leben. 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 Das ist ist ein Das ist ein Das ist ein Das ist Das ist Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.